Hey, hey, everybody, and welcome to the Independent Life Podcast. We have a special treat for you today. Kaylee Mayer, Community Outreach Specialist from the Epilepsy Alliance of Florida, gives us a fantastic conversation about epilepsy, what it is, and describes exactly what it's like to live with epilepsy, the you know physiology of it, the pathology of it, but also the psychology and, and emotions that are around it, what it's like for the family. She goes into this amazing organization, Epilepsy Alliance of Florida. If you or someone you know and care about has epilepsy, you should be linked up with this this fantastic organization immediately. They do so many services and programs for people at no cost to people, but they offer all kinds of peer support groups for people who have epilepsy, for the family members of those that they care and love about with epilepsy. They do amazing advocacy work in the schools. We found out about them, we being like Centers for Independent Living, because they offer a first aid course on epilepsy. So if you encounter someone that may be having a seizure, they provide training on what to do and what not to do with it. They obviously have a presence in Tallahassee because they got some important uh, legislation passed regarding schools and advocacy and people in schools knowing what to do in case uh, someone's on an IEP with epilepsy and they happen to have a seizure. They just do so much amazing work and uh, as you'll hear from this interview with Kaylee, she's super inspired uh, to do the work that she does. And the way that she really talks about this, you can hear from it, about the heart that she has for it. But also, you know, an important ingredient is the knowledge. She's got an amazing background in studying epilepsy from the clinical side of it. And I really connect with her on how she made the transition from understanding epilepsy from a clinical setting to working for a nonprofit, the Epilepsy Alliance of Florida, and how making that transition and, and kind of really, you know, taking what she learned from the clinical setting, but also, you know, putting it to work in the community setting has just really helped to do the work that she's doing at a at even a higher degree. I really believe in how the power of nonprofits and the sense of community that nonprofits can have and to really reach people and to galvanize people. Uh, around a cause and, and a cause that is so worthy, you know, half a million Floridians have epilepsy. And if you can imagine for each of those Floridians, there's likely minimum three to five or even more people that it touches. So the epilepsy touches literally millions of people just alone in the state of Florida. And it's a condition that can be very mysterious. Uh, its origins not widely known. You know, the treatments for it, again, is not exactly super clear. And what I think the highlight of this interview is the way that she talks about how people with epilepsy have to have so much courage uh, to lean into the uncertainty of if they're going to have an uh, you know, episode during the day, but still going to, you know, go out there and work and be a part of the community and continue to live their life on and the amazing resilience that it can, you know, build in people and the strength-based value-based uh, aspects that epilepsy can bring to people that have it. So I bring you Kaylee Mayer from the Epilepsy Alliance of Florida. Hey, hey, everybody, and my guest today is Kaylee Mayer, comes to us from Epilepsy Alliance of Florida. So Kaylee, I'm just getting to know you, and before we jump into epilepsy and what it's all about and the great work that Epilepsy Alliance of Florida is all about, introduce yourself. Let us know who you are and if any personal or professional experiences, you know, outside of Epilepsy Alliance of Florida, led you to Epilepsy Alliance of Florida, please feel free to share. All right. So I'm a community resource specialist with Epilepsy Alliance Florida. Prior to working with Epilepsy Alliance, I worked at Shands Hospital in Gainesville for almost five years on their neurosurgery unit. So during that time, we ended up acquiring what's called uh, an EMU unit. So what we do there is 
um, we pretty much do a study of the brain of someone that's having seizures and experiencing seizures um, to map where the seizure is happening in their brain. So when acquiring that, we would induce those patients to have seizures and pretty much just record whatever happened down to the smallest detail of their left toe was twitching. They looked right before they had their seizure or during their seizure. So we tracked all of those little minute details for the epileptologists and having all that experience with being around seizures and epilepsy kind of led me to Epilepsy Alliance. Um, I had always loved the mission that nonprofits have. They're not here to make a profit. They're here to help individuals. So I always knew I wanted to work in the nonprofit sector of some sort, but I have a huge background in neurology and epilepsy specifically. Um, so that kind of just led me here. <laughs> wow. So how did you end up with Shans and even into interested in neurology? Like, where does that come from? Um, so it's actually completely random. So when I was in high school, I did the HOSA, pro the HOSA program, Health Occupation Students of America. I got my uh -huh. CNA license out of high school. Um, I had that before I graduated, actually. And Shans was the first wow. job that I had outside of high school, besides a small receptionist job that I had. But my best friend actually worked on the unit that I applied to. And we ended up working together for, I think, about a year before she moved. Um, but yeah, so she was actually the whole reason I got into neurosurgery to begin with. And I just really loved my team and never left. <laughs> Wow, that that's awesome that you were already like thinking occupational wise, health occupation, even in high school in a part of an association. I, I was aware of the the college student groups with HOSA, but I didn't know that they went down through high school as well. That's awesome. Yes, yes. They go into high school, you can do competitions and stuff like that. Our group did not do those, but still graduating with your CNA license was pretty big. So Gotcha. Did you have any, you know, before coming to college or even in college, any experience with people with disabilities at all before, you know, kind of encountering everything in the world of epilepsy that you have? Um, with epilepsy specifically, no. So one thing was that led me to the medical field specifically was my grandpa was chronically ill and watching all of those interactions with the nurses and the doctors and things like that kind of led me to want to do something in the medical field. Um, and then when we were in our clinical rotations for the HOSA program, we rotated through um, special need classrooms in our local schools. So one of them, our high school had a special needs program for high school age children. And then our elementary school across the street had a program for special needs kids that are elementary aged. Wow. Some of those had epilepsy, but not all of them. You know, going back to your grandfather, um, what did you see there that inspired you to go into the field? Was it like I saw excellent patient care uh, and that led me into it? Or was it more or less like, you know, I'm seeing there's probably some work uh, and improvements that could be done and I want to be the change that fixes the system. So it was a little bit of both. While he did have some amazing nurses and doctors that uh, you really could tell cared, there was some of the ones that were um, subpar, I guess you could say that sometimes, not necessarily that they were just there for the paycheck, but you could kind of tell that maybe something on something else was going on in the rest of their life that uh, was kind of overflowing into their work. It always just helped me to remember that there's a person behind the patient, especially coming from it from like a very personal side. My grandpa was like a dad to me. He was always there when I was growing up. Like we lived together for some time. Actually, um, once he started getting really chronically ill, he moved in with us when I was a kid. And so like being there firsthand and seeing all of those things that were going on and knowing the person that was behind that patient um, has always kind of been a driving force for me. That's huge. I, I think often about, um, I guess it's couched as health literacy, like to be able to communicate in a language that patients can understand and act on and developing that rapport with patients and showing empathy. Um, I'm understanding that, you know, in the research, at least they're showing that like that's can have tremendous impacts on health outcomes, you know, just by connecting to the patients themselves in the healthcare setting. So I'm really glad to, to hear that that's really one of the areas that inspired you to to really get into the healthcare. And I also hear as you tell your story there, another piece that sounds very important 
In terms of the world of independent living, which you know centers for independent living are all about, we're interested in, to whatever extent possible, keeping people with disabilities or epilepsy or whatever the condition is in the community, in their homes, to whatever extent possible. And with your grandfather, you know, moving in with you all, and you all, I imagine being the ones that were, I don't know if you were the primary caregivers for him at that point, informal caregivers or whatever that you might have had. But what insights did did this give you now you're outside the clinic and now we're looking at like home care, you know, related to keeping people in the community? Were there any insights that you gained from having that? I know you were pretty young at the time. Uh, Yeah, I I mean, I was young, but it's always good to be able uh, to keep people in their life, like their lifestyle as normal as possible. I know my grandpa always said that if it came down to it, he would rather stop fighting at some point, as morbid as it sounds, he would rather stop fighting than have to drastically alter his lifestyle and have to live in a nursing home or anything like that, which I mean, he, I think at the bottom line, I think he would have had it come to that. Unfortunately, it, it, not unfortunately, but in a selfish way for myself, unfortunately, um, because we didn't get him longer, but he, he did get to pretty much keep his life the way that he wanted to for the most part. He never had any of those things besides like home health care nurses, which bless home, home health care nurses. I cannot imagine um, some of the things that they go through on a daily basis, um, especially knowing my grandpa. He, is, he was stubborn. Oh my goodness. He was so stubborn. <laughs> but uh, just you know, keeping their life as normal as possible and agencies that are there to be able to help help do that are amazing. Home healthcare nurses was one of the ones that we encountered specifically. Um, we never really needed much more than that before he ended up going to the hospital. Yep. You're hitting on, I think, so, so many interesting facets of what it means to keep people in the community to our extent possible. Certainly access to quality healthcare matters, as you noted, having, making sure we have good home care and whether it is like from the agencies and the people that work in those agencies, but also the family support itself, like your family being able to do that. You know, we realize from the state of Florida, you know, they estimate that there's billions, 30 something billions of dollars a year of informal unpaid family care that is given to people to keep them, you know, in their own homes. So there's a lot of pieces that go into it. Let me go back now to also, um, you were mentioning you did some I believe you said clinical rotations in exceptional student education classrooms. Did I hear that right? Yes. Okay. I love how there's clinical rotations in the schools because of the social determinants of health and education being one of them. So tell me about what you learned from kind of like a, either a public health or healthcare provider lens by going through schools. Not a lot of people associate health and schools together. Right. Um, So one of the things that we did specifically besides going through um, the special needs classrooms was we went into um, the nurses offices as well. So the clinics where the kids would come if you had an upset stomach or anything like that. And one thing that the nurses always do is like a personal hygiene type of seminar kind of thing, if you will, with the kids. And they break it down into a super, super simple way and just be able to explain the importance of taking baths every day because you know kids don't want to take baths they want to keep they want to keep playing having fun bath time isn't necessarily always fun so um, breaking that down why it's important and washing your hands why that's so important um, and how that can play into other facets of your life as well and the teachers reinforcing that because the teachers are there for that part of it as well so teachers I'm sure they do it whether the nurses are telling them to or not because kids will get into anything and everything. You don't know it's there and the kid's going to find it. So yeah, they're amazing like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I'm laughing because I think of my kids and I'm like, oh my gosh, it's like pulling teeth to get them in a bath or even to take a nap. (laughs) And now like when you get older, it's like, that's the ideal day to relax, you know, take a long bath or shower (laughs) and you go to bed. And so funny. All right. So you've had these very formative experiences and uh, you got into neurology, you got a good friend that does it. It sounds like you had an amazing experience there at the hospital for five years, I believe you said, in the area of neurology. Now, you were learning from, you know, I guess the, the medical side quite a bit about epilepsy. What was it that you could tell people that aren't, you know, as medically trained as you are about epilepsy, especially if people don't know like much about epilepsy 
And, and what can you tell them about what the condition of epilepsy is all about? Um, so I think it's important to note that epilepsy itself is a spectrum disorder. So it is completely different for everybody that has it. For some people, it can be almost debilitating to where you can't have a job because of the severity of your seizures. But on the other hand, there are people who are able to have jobs and able to be and go out and live a normal life. So I think that is one thing that's super important to note and that people with epilepsy are the ones that don't have the debilitating type of epilepsy, obviously. They are able to hold jobs of high stress. We've had presidents that had epilepsy. There was, I can't, I can't remember off the top of my head if it was like Thomas Edison or Benjamin Franklin, but somebody in that wheelhouse had epilepsy. Uh And, you know, I found, as soon as I found that out, I was like, wow, that's so funny that that's something that we've never talked about. That's not like widely known. We know he did this, this, and this, but we didn't know that he had epilepsy the whole time he was doing it. So I think it's important to know that like, there's still a person behind the epilepsy that just because they have the diagnosis and they have seizures doesn't mean that there's some kind of taboo around them and that they're not just like anybody else. Right. Well, I like you say that, you know, in the world of disability, you know, we, we often say, you know, people first terminology because it really points towards seeing the person for their holistic side of themselves and not just for the condition that they might have. There's so much to us and it's just one facet of it and everything like that. And I love how you say it's like a spectrum and that, you know, there can be all the way from fully functioning to perhaps debilitating and and everything else in between. What is the prevalence of epilepsy, you know, in our society in general? uh, Like one out of four adults have a disability, but that's all disabilities. Mm -hmm. And um, out of disabilities, I'm I'm interested to know kind of like what the, uh, the prevalence rates of epilepsy is and how many people this impacts. So I'm glad you said that because that was actually one thing that I did want to say that I completely sidetracked. So epilepsy itself, every one in 26 people have, wow. but an even That's more- a, a high prevalence. Exactly. An even more shocking statistic is that one in every 10 people will have a seizure in their lifetime. So when I learned that, it, it was insane to me to know how common, it, how common yeah. seizures and epilepsy are. And you would just never guess. Wow. And so for people that don't, again, have a lot of insight to what epilepsy is, and yes, it is on a spectrum, is there any way of describing what it's like for somebody to go through, is it an epileptic episode? Is that how you would pronounce it? Yeah. um, So me personally, I don't have epilepsy and I've never had a seizure, so I can't explain it from a firsthand um, scenario. But based on my time at the hospital and seeing all of those patients that I took care of, have seizures a lot of them they don't really remember what happened at all sometimes they black out like seconds to minutes before the seizure happens and then don't recount anything they just wake up and they're like oh my goodness I have a killer migraine and I feel Mm -hmm. like I might throw up and so it just it depends on the person some people have these things called auras which is um can be From what I understand, obviously I don't have epilepsy and I've never had a seizure, so I don't know firsthand, but from what I've been told from patients, it's like a a strange feeling. It's like that, that sense that like, you know, something's going to happen, but you just Mm -hmm. don't quite know what, uh, for Mm -hmm. people that have these commonly, they, they pretty much know like, Hey, I'm pretty sure I'm about to have a seizure. I think this is what's going to happen. But, you know, just to put it on an, um, the level of someone who doesn't have epilepsy or has never had one, it's like that, that, that feeling in the back of your head, you're like, something's not right. And that's kind of the feeling that I've been described. Yeah, we, and we serve people here at our center that um, exactly have those auras and, and do tell us ahead of time when mm-hmm. it's about to come and we get them seated and, you know, do some things that we know after getting to know them are very helpful while they're having a seizure. But as I as I say this, from what I'm aware of, uh, Epilepsy Alliance of Florida does some first aid type classes related to epilepsy. Is that right? Yes, we do. We do seizure first aid training to anybody who wants who who wants it. When we do the presentations, we can do them whether it's on Zoom, Teams, whatever kind of uh, video conferencing service you use. It uh, doesn't really matter. Typically, we set them up on Zoom, but if you can't do that, that's fine. We'll figure out some other kind of way. 
typically we only require about two to three people to, to start the class. Uh, we also have on-demand trainings for school personnel specifically. We did um, help pass a bill in the house that states that any school personnel that comes in contact with a child that has a seizure action plan on file with the school is required to be trained in seizure first aid. Ready to go. Our huge part of our focus is advocating for patient or advocating for our clients and making sure that they have the best possible support in any facet of their life that they can. One of those being in school, there's a lot of people that I've spoken with over the last few months that have mentioned that when their kids were in school, teach, their kid would have a seizure and their teachers and anybody around them would have no idea what to do. And uh-huh. knowing the possibilities that could happen when someone has a seizure, it's really shocking to like hear that people don't know what to do. Let me um, ask you then, if you don't mind, like now we're going to be linking up in the show notes, your contact information. If people are interested in, in getting signed up for, you know, these epilepsy first aid trainings, they're going to be able to reach you. And I think it's really awesome. They're free, right? Yes, they are free. That's amazing. And, and it's only like a couple people to get them started. It's mm-hmm. awesome. So we're going to link that up in the show notes. Now, is there any good tips you could give us, you know, outside of a, a course on this, that if someone does encounter somebody in public, maybe they don't know them or maybe they do. I don't know. Are there any like basic tips that people can know about without taking the course that could be helpful if anyone does encounter them? And again, this is not a replacement for people taking an actual course and learning the very specifics of it. Right. Absolutely. Um, I would say is just knowing when a seizure is an emergency. Um, if you don't know the person, I would always say that the seizure is an emergency because you don't know them. You don't know if they have epilepsy. You don't know if this is their first time or if their seizure is changing from one kind to another. Um, There are multiple kinds of seizures. We don't talk about all of them in our seizure first aid, but we do hit on the most common and the ones that are um, most commonly seen and need to be reported. But I would say if it is someone that you know and the seizure lasts more than five minutes, that's something that we always, always, always touch on. Um, is that any seizure over five minutes automatically becomes an emergency. Other than that, I would just say, make sure you stay with the person until they're completely aware and conscious again. Depending on the type of the seizure, they can lose consciousness. Um, And when they wake up, there's a period that they don't know what's going on. And in my experience at the hospital, they can't even form complete sentences at that point. It comes out as gibberish for a little while until they're able to, you know, kind of regain their composure and their sense of where they're at making sure that before you leave them they can tell you where they're at who they are uh, what year it is making sure that they're just completely reoriented to their surroundings and know that they're probably going to have a massive migraine when they wake up so is there any uh, so when you say there's that five minute window is that the five minutes of the seizure or is that the five minutes including the questions and then being able to answer the questions about what day of the week it is, who they are, where they are, that kind of That's stuff. five minutes of the seizure itself. So one thing we go over in our training is to note the time that the seizure starts, which also would be, I guess, could be important to note, note as well. If you do call 911, it's helpful to be able to tell them, hey, the seizure started at this time, it ended at this time. That way they can pass it on to the hospital if necessary for the patient to go. So yeah, knowing, noting the time is important as well. Okay. Since migraines are kind of common, is there any kind of like if they're in the clinic or something like that, do they, is there any treatment for these migraines at all? Or is it just time? Specifically, I don't know that there's one targeted towards epilepsy in general. I know in the hospital, we would always have an IV in their hand. So we always gave Ativan once the seizure started um, just to help stop the seizure quicker because we only needed it to start to figure out where it was happening in their brain. Um, So we just needed it to happen. We didn't need it to last any length of time. I believe we just gave like generic Tylenol or something like that uh, for the headaches. I don't know specifically if there's anything that can actually take it away. I've never specifically been told of anything, unfortunately, but I believe Tylenol is really just what we gave in the hospital. Gotcha. Okay. So 
if I remember correctly in the beginning, you were saying while you were at Shands, you all were doing uh, research on people and inducing you know, seizures with them. Is that right? Yes. So it wasn't for like wow. a research study or anything. It was just for that patient specifically. To, to maybe get the pathology of what was going on. Yes, exactly. And, uh, uh, for some people, a treatment, um, it can be removing the piece of the brain that causes those seizures. Obviously, if it's not a super important part obviously your whole brain is important but there are some pieces that you can kind of remove and live without mm -hmm. so as you're saying all this you know i it just i would imagine living with seizures um has got to be psychologically and emotionally challenging how how would you describe how people um really come to terms with living with epilepsy um you know what, what's that like on a like a psychological emotional like level for people, like I'm, you got the physical part, right? You mm -hmm. got you know the phys physiology of it and the headaches and everything else, and that's pretty tough. But walk me through, like you know, how people in the psychological, emotional side of having seizures. So for people that do have epilepsy, they are more prone to um, depression and anxiety and things like that. Um, that is one of the resources that we do provide at Epilepsy Alliance is support groups to know that you're not alone. And that you're not the only one that's feeling this way. Um, but I'm sure that I know, I know from talking to patients um, that it can be really draining um, to know that like, or to feel like you're the only one that feels this way or mm, that right. you're sometimes people can feel almost like a burden. Sure. And it's yeah. important to know that like you, they're, they're not a burden and that they're, obviously you didn't choose this. So, you know, there's nothing that you can do about it besides just kind of embrace what you have going on and just know that there are people that are here to support you and that really do care about you, which again, is one of the things that we do try and do at Epilepsy Alliance is support and encourage those people that are feeling like that. I'm so glad to hear that you have these peer supports that are built into Epilepsy Alliance of Florida. And that union, that camaraderie, that sense of community, I would imagine, especially like people that might be new to epilepsy and there's people in there that have lived with it for much longer, could be really supportive of one another, giving each other a hand up. And that kind of solidarity would be just, I, I would imagine, pretty amazing. I, I, it really resonates with me, too, when you when you talk about not wanting to be a burden. I, I, and I think across all disabilities, and for me in particular, you know, I have a vision disability. I can't drive and thus you know, I'm relying on other people for rides or, you know, my, my wife does all the shopping and, all, you know, encumbers just more work. They do it with grace and you know, all this other stuff. But there is this kind of sense of, oh, man, I'm being a burden and, and all these other kind of things on, on them. So you got social supports there. Have you seen anything else that might help people who have epilepsy develop emotional re resilience or um, lead to a, a strong, you know, psycho, uh, emotional type foundation for living with epilepsy? So we have the support groups that are led by our case managers. We do have, um, for youth specifically, we have our youth advocacy council, um, where they have guest speakers that will come in and speak to them, which not only do they talk about um, like psychological aspects of the epilepsy, they do all forms of things. Like we had somebody come in from a bank, like a bank manager come in one time and talk to them about setting up a checking account. But we also do have like counseling available as well that we do provide for the individual that has epilepsy as well as their family. One of our clients has said uh, in the past that it's not an individual diagnosis, it's a family diagnosis, which is absolutely true um, because your epilepsy doesn't just affect you, it, it affects your family as well. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it affects them in a bad way in any shape or form because they love you in the end and they know you're not doing it on purpose. You know, you're not, a, you're not a burden to them. Um, they care about you and they truly just want to help in any way possible. What type of uh, supports for family do you find particularly helpful? Um, so I think that the, the counseling is one of the biggest things. It does come from a, a licensed psychologist. Um, so she works exclusively with our organization um, from what I'm aware and we do have these sessions where an epileptologist will do, I can't remember if it's the T, I think it's T with an epileptologist. We do these once a month 
where parents, clients, whoever can hop on to this Zoom call and ask questions. And, you know, even though it's not specifically focusing on the like emotional aspect of things, just having the peace of mind and having somebody available to answer those questions that maybe you didn't think of, or maybe you were scared to ask because advocacy for yourself can sometimes be a challenge for people. They get scared, they get into a doctor's Mm -hmm. office and they freak out and freeze and they don't ask the questions that they need to ask. Um, Because unfortunately advocating for yourself is something that's that's not taught very often to people. Um, that's one thing that I did learn at my time at the hospital is that people don't really know how to advocate for themselves. So these, these groups that we do kind of open the door to that kind of question asking that no question is a dumb question. It's okay to ask anything. And maybe listening to the questions of other people helps you think of something that you could ask or answers a question that you had and you didn't even know you had. Right. Yeah. Asking questions is a huge part of advocacy. So then it sounds like, and I think you said it from your youth groups, you do have a youth advocacy group. Um, what, what are, what are other key, key elements of teaching advocacy? I agree. Like, you know, it's kind of one of those things that is not taught, um, and is almost like assumed, like, just go advocate, you know, stand up for yourself, you know, speak up and like these non-helpful really kind of things with advocacy I'm finding is a very, educational and skill related um type thing and and it's almost like saying you know go mentor somebody without teaching somebody well what is a mentor how do you do mentorship you know and and those kind of things so what what are some key elements that you found very helpful in terms of you know teaching people with epilepsy how to or their family or caregivers how to be advocates i think it's important to be with them just be available for them whether it's to kind of talk with them through the appointment or because obviously right now with COVID and everything going on, they're not really letting many people in. So we've had to adapt some of that, but being there through the whole process with them and not just saying, you got it, go for it. Just being there with them, like letting them know that it's okay to ask questions, giving them a heads up on like what kinds of questions to ask, what to look out for, and more so than just kind of giving them a little pep talk and just throwing them to the wolves per se. Yeah, yeah, be specific. So we've touched on just some of the pieces of the, of the Epilepsy Alliance of Florida. You know, we talked about how you do a first aid class for epilepsy, which is awesome. You talked about how you do some advocacy um, with um, the students and IEPs and making sure people have some of the work there, youth advocacy group, peer supports uh, for people who uh, have epilepsy. What else do you all do programmatically? So we have our case management, which is ties into the um, advocacy part. They can help make appointments, those support groups, those kinds of things. Our prevention and education team is those seizure first aid programs, just raising awareness for epilepsy and the condition that it is. Uh, we also have a department, we call it our navigation department, that is specifically dedicated to finding healthcare coverage for people that don't have it. Uh, and that is not limited to anybody that, to people with just epilepsy, that's open to anybody that doesn't have health insurance. Wow. So if I didn't have health insurance, I don't have epilepsy, I don't have seizures, I could call into our navigation department and they would help me find coverage. Wow. Wow. That's fantastic. Yeah. Not only do we do that for people with epilepsy, we do it for everybody. We have our medical services, like I was mentioning. Part of that is the uh, psychological aspect, but also anybody that has a suspicion of having epilepsy at all. Um, can call our organization, sign up to be a client, and we can help them go through the process of either getting the diagnosis or figuring out what actually is causing these seizures uh, or these episodes to happen. We can help them get the diagnostic testing. We can help them pay for the medication, and we can help them with these tests that are called EEGs. I can't pronounce the whole word because it's super long, you know, right. typical med- medical lingo. <laughs> yeah, 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 right. Yeah, but we can, we can help them get those 
procedures and those tests done to help get to the bottom of whatever is causing what's going on. Wow. So you all do a lot. Wow. Yes. Yes. Advocacy is our, is our big thing. We're the leading advocacy agency in the state of Florida for people with epilepsy. Well, yeah, it sounds like you do individual level uh, advocacy by teaching people the knowledge and skills needed to be advocates. But then, like you just mentioned earlier, you you got some you know legislation passed as well. So how are you all able to advance systemic advocacy as your coalition? So I think it really starts on a local level and knowing what people with epilepsy are going through and knowing the needs that they have. And then from there, finding a way to do it, being determined to get it done because, you know, everybody's new at something at any point in their life, you know, there's always something that you've never done before. You have to start from somewhere and Uh just finding the resources that you need to be able to get those Mm -hmm. done. But I think it definitely starts at, uh, at a local level and knowing what your clients are needing from you and having that connection with your clients to be able to facilitate that. Yeah, knowing who your state reps are yes. too, and uh, talking with them and explaining, you know, as their constituents, what some of their needs are. And as Centers for Independent Living, there's many of them throughout the state, but we do have a, a presence up in Tallahassee where, you know, we, we have folks that, you know, get up on the hill and talk with people, but it does very much sound like at the local level for uh, connecting with the, the representatives that are up there and developing relationships with them and them knowing uh, the importance of uh, addressing, you know, the issues related to epilepsy. I thought, I think it was from from uh, your website that they they mentioned like there's like four hundred thousand people with epilepsy in the state of Florida. Yes. like nearly a half a million people. That's a, yeah, I mean, that's a significant amount of of our, of our population. So all representatives should be aware of this and should know this and should care deeply uh, about meeting the needs of Floridians who have epilepsy and their family. So you got to figure, you know, for every one person of those 400,000, there's three to five people at least that is also impacting. So that's like millions of people right there throughout the state of Florida, you know, a good size of our population being impacted. Yes, absolutely. I believe that number has actually grown to uh, about 500,000. Yeah, half a million. So it's, it's a lot of people. And, and like you said, knowing that for that one person that has it, it affects a whole circle around them. So it's not just them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it does affect a lot of people. It's the most common neurological disorder in children because a lot of people do get diagnosed as a child, but it is important to know that you can develop epilepsy. And our prevention and education part of our organization is really where we kind of advocate for that and we raise awareness for that is that it is something that you can develop as you get older. In elderly people specifically, dementia is considered, can be considered like a damage, damage to the brain uh, and epilepsy is caused, can be caused by a traumatic brain injury. What would you want people to know about people with epilepsy in terms of the the strengths or the values or the virtues that they encumber by, you know, living with epilepsy? You know, what would you want people to know about, you know, the people and the clients that you serve? They are incredibly resilient. To go through something that can affect your life daily for some people and be able to just keep going, keep going and Honestly, sometimes people don't, they don't even act like it, like it happens, you know, just for, I know for me, like if I was going through something and I had seizures every day, I would personally probably feel pretty drained just knowing that like, oh man, I could probably have another seizure today. And then I'm going to have a massive migraine for the rest of the day. You know, just, I would probably be in a bad mood most of the time, but these people just act like it's nothing and they're incredibly resilient. And just, uh, we had a walk recently. And so what are our, what I mean by a walk is we had an awareness walk. Um, this one was specifically in Jacksonville and the whole part of planning this walk, we had encountered a business owner that had a business on the riverfront and, um, he was look. He was watching our uh, one of our development people scope out the place that we were going to have it at, and he was like, "Hey, you can come have this right out in front of my uh, my cafe." So, long story short, we ended up doing that, and we ended up finding out a few weeks later that he himself actually had epilepsy. 
fast forward to the day of the walk, I was inside asking for a bucket of ice actually um, to put some of our um, waters in and for the coffee stuff that we had. And the lady that was helping me come to find out she actually had epilepsy herself too. And she was in there, she was counting the money because they hadn't even opened up yet. And they, he had his whole, his whole staff there that day to help us in any way possible. An amazing, amazing company. She like, you never would have guessed. And she uh, ended up telling me a little bit more about her story and um, like what she's gone through and how she just keeps going. And I literally like she almost had me in tears at one point and just like, just knowing that everything that she's been through and she, you would never know because she just had mm-hmm. such a, a positive energy about her. Uh, she was so, so optimistic, I guess you could say. I don't feel like that's even the right word right. to, to describe her, but she was just the sweetest person checked in us on us multiple times during the day. And so did the owner of the cafe as well. They were just amazing. Yeah, honestly, I would just say the positivity, the uh, the resilience, the endurance, just all all of those things. Wow, and 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 it seems like to me as you're describing this, it, it really you know could be all really facing uncertainty. Like if you're saying that you know people aren't aware of how their day is going to go, when they're going to have a seizure, how it's going to be, the rest of their day could be really a hard time once they do. You know, I just think about the world we live in right now with pandemics and economics and all these cultural changes, like the uncertainty I I find that really grips people with a lot of fear and uh, all these other kind of things. And, you know, how that uncertainty can make people resilient, you know, if they lean into it with courage and, you know, determination and like you were saying, endurance and perseverance, you know, and, and epilepsy sounds like it really provides people that opportunity you know, to be able to lean into that uncertainty with the, with courage that's needed and to, to endure. That's amazing. Yes, absolutely. Wow. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to pivot a little bit here because I'm very interested in how you made the change from a clinical setting in, in terms of uh, working with, with people who have epilepsy to the nonprofit arena. How did that shift happen? Like, what was it about you that was like, you know, wanted to make that. I'm interested in myself. Um, you know, I, I wasn't necessarily a clinic. I was public health, um, but I definitely made the pivot to nonprofit in terms of addressing, you know, health outcomes. So I'm interested in your journey and how you went from clinical to community. So when I was in college originally, so originally I wanted to do nursing um, in my time at the hospital. And after I had left the hospital setting for a little while, I had kind of realized, you know, maybe this isn't really the thing that I want to do. I always knew I wanted to work in healthcare in some way, shape or form. But um, I went to a college down in Lakeland, Florida for a year. Um, And while I was there, I worked with a company called One More Child, um, which if you don't know what they do, they help with victims of human trafficking. They do foster, foster care licensing. Uh, residential foster care, they help with adoption, child hunger, uh, they do global missions. Uh, it's a Christian organization, um, so that's where the whole global mission part comes in. Uh-huh. But I worked there, and the atmosphere that was there was something that I had never experienced before and never had seen in a workplace. It was amazing. The the goal-minded people that I worked with and just knowing that you were directly doing something good for someone was Mm -hmm. incredible and they were a nonprofit and that's really what kind of made the switch to me is okay I want to do something with a nonprofit but I also want to tie healthcare into here somehow Mm -hmm. after that there was a whole other like personal thing that had happened um I got married I worked at some long-term care facility just for a little while just so that I could pay my bills and Mm -hmm. ended up finding this job one day honestly it it was a god thing because I have no other explanation Mm -hmm. and just it landed me here and it's everything that I could have hoped for in a job I love the mission that we have I love that we impact people locally and just knowing that we are directly affecting people in a positive manner. 
that we're, we're awesome. here truly to make people's lives better and to raise awareness for a condition that not a lot of people understand and understand how common it is. And it's a mystery, right? Like in the sciences, like there really still is not a really solid explanation of why it occurs, treatment as well. No quote unquote cure yeah, that's out right. there. Right. So there is no cure for epilepsy. It is incredibly common to not know why you have it. Uh-huh. The statistics specifically on the amount of people that don't have a cause for their epilepsy has been updated. And since it's been updated, I don't know the specific number. But I know that it is a, a huge majority that don't know why they have it. Um, some people, there can be metabolic reasons that they have it. Um, traumatic brain injuries is one of those causes of epilepsy that I was mentioning. Sometimes there's a malformation in the brain and the pathways of the brain. There's other little causes like birth defects, things like that. Uh, but all centered around abnormalities in the brain and not always do people know why they have it. Like I said, the ma- the majority don't know. I applaud your pivot from the clinical setting to the nonprofit community-based setting. I, I really do feel like in terms of health outcomes, my opinion, that um, we can make more of an impact addressing the social determinants of health, we'll just call it, you know, education, employment, advocacy, transportation, housing, access to, you know, quality healthcare is access to quality healthcare is like 20% impactful in terms of health outcomes. The rest happens outside the clinic in the community, 80%. And so I think more people like you involved in in community-based organizations that are, uh, you know, specifically aimed at helping populations that are within our communities that are experiencing negative health outcomes are so critical in complementing, you know, the clinical care that's provided out there. And it's like we need more clinic to community based supports that are out there for people. And um, I'm finding that, you know, we just there's just more engagement on the community based end. And I'd imagine with your position as a community resource and outreach person, you have probably some understanding of that. So my question then is to you is like, what are, what are some of the, the, the things that you're finding helpful in terms of community outreach and the importance of reaching a community? I would say just making the awareness known, I guess you could say, um, is just making sure that people are aware that things like the things like this are it, you do need to know it. Personally, I think that everybody should know how to do CPR and should know how to respond to seizures and know how to do those things just to, to make it a better, more supportive community for anybody that's in there. But just making, making those local connections and letting people know that you're there to help them and that you're not there to take their money because you find a lot mm-hmm. of times that people are like, oh, okay, yeah, we're here to help you, but we require this much and we require this and we require this. Just knowing that you don't, they don't have to pay you for anything. You know, we are here to help them. You're not here to make a, to make a dollar. Yeah, that's what's beautiful about like centers. Like all our services are free for the people that we serve. And, and some people are like, okay, where's the bill? Where's the check in the mail? What's the right, angle? Exactly. You know? and, and it's so, so refreshing to be like, we just want to help. We want to serve. And that's what we're all about. So talk to me about what you believe independent living or living independently means for people with, you know, who live with epilepsy. Honestly, I think it boils down to normality. It makes them feel more normal. Uh, it makes them feel like they don't, there's not something different about them that they can just fit in and be normal, whatever you think normal is, mm-hmm. you know, because really what is normal, but um. <laughs> <laughs> boring, boring, overdone. Yeah. Too many people are doing it, whatever it exactly. is. <laughs> is there stigma around epilepsy? And if so, what, what does that look like? Uh, yeah, actually there is. So there's um, these outdated thought processes, I guess you could put it, that epilepsy can be contagious, which it a hundred percent is not. Um, you know, you, you can't catch a neurological condition. So it's a mystery, but we know it's right. not airborne. It, it might be a little bit of a mystery, <laughs> but we know that it doesn't, it's not airborne. <laughs> we know what it's not. Exactly. Yeah. Gotcha. Right. So I, I think that, um, that is, it's not as prevalent anymore, but that's one. And that people with epilepsy, a lot of the times you think, oh, 
the stress is a trigger for a seizure so they can't have a stressful job uh they have to take it easy they're disabled you know that it a lot of it is I don't want to say negative stigma but it more leans on the side of a negative stigma um and that's another thing that we're we desperately want to change is to you know think of them as a person you know don't think of them as their disability yeah no i think that's very helpful to do and i ask because i'm i'm always interested in learning how we can better uh, work to destigmatize disability or or something that's specific like epilepsy and i think better understanding what the stigma is is part of dismantling uh, any kind of stigma that might exist absolutely it. Well, Kayla, your enthusiasm and inspiration for serving people who have epilepsy is, is, is very palpable and uh, you're very vibrant of, about your experiences and connection with the, the community of people who have epilepsy. You know, I find it very endearing that you know, you're a champion uh, for the cause and, and that you uh, are doing so much fantastic work. Look forward to continuing this conversation through our interagency collaborations that we have on the horizon. We're going to have you in and help uh, orient our staff to epilepsy and first aid and, you know, look to seek to learn more from you. And, and, and because I know we, we do serve people who have seizures and uh, want to always be better at what we do. And thank you so much for raising awareness with myself and, and the listeners of this podcast about epilepsy. And uh, we will be linking in Check out the show notes to reach out to you all to, to see all the, the smorgasbord of amazing services that you all provide. So I'm just so I, I always get so inspired when I when I connect with people who have just such a, a great heart, you know, highly intelligent, highly enthusiastic and very inspirational to serve. You know, I love highlighting people like yourself to really, you know, kind of counter some of the, the other things and forces that are going on in this world and keep doing the awesome work that you're doing to help unite the community. Thank you so much. Um, and you guys as well. I mean, I know you guys have a lot of services that you provide to the community, especially at no cost. You know, like you said, people are always looking for a bill and it's nice to say, hey, you don't have one. We're just here to help. But, you know, thank you for giving me the opportunity to be able to raise awareness through this podcast. You know, it's great to get our, our organization out there and to let our services be known. All right, Kaylee. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And until the next time. Awesome. Onward and upward. Thanks for listening to the Independent Life Podcast brought to you by the Center for Independent Living of North Central Florida. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe. And if you know anyone who might benefit from listening, share this podcast and invite them to subscribe too. For questions, suggestions, or if you have a story you'd like to share, please email us at cilncf.org at gmail.com or call us at 352-378-7474. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, support, advocate, and empower each other to live the independent life.